Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard to a very special Sunday special here for Human Events. And back by popular demand, of course, to break down the World Economic Forum. They just finished their 2023 meeting in Davos, Switzerland. We have, again, international journalist Norbin Laden. She has graciously agreed to be with us for the entire hour because there's so much information and so much substance that came out of the World Economic Forum and, and also that goes into it that I said, you know, just the, the regular weekday, uh, you know, half hour episode wasn't long enough. We had to bring her on for the full special. So Norbin Laden, thank you so much for joining us yet again here on the show. And I really want to get to your Here's the question that I'd like to frame for really the entire conversation. Where do we stand? Are uh, Klaus Schwab and his, his cabal, and as, as you said before, he's not the, the leader of this. He's the, the chief minion. He's, the, he's the, the leader of the PR representatives for the actual elites in charge. And yet we hear things like Obama's former economic advisor saying that we must allow China to continue their economic rise. We must allow China to continue becoming powerful, even if, even if it affects U.S. national security. He specifically just said that this week. Uh, we've heard so many pronouncements and statements by Klaus Schwab of the coming of the poly crisis and how the World Economic Forum must join together and we must get get away from these outdated uh, conceptions such as private capitalism or even state capitalism. We must form new transnational organizations that create a, uh, a merger between business and economics and international relations and all of these things. And, you know, if you're a country like like Russia that doesn't want to go along with it, then, well, we must destroy you and send NATO tanks and German tanks and Polish tanks and American tanks even uh, to crush you for not going along with uh, the New World Alliance really reminds me of Aldous Huxley and the world state from mm -hmm. Brave New World. Uh, this is this idea that everyone can get their instant gratification, uh, whether through drugs or uh, physical pleasures. And as but at the same time, you must ascribe to all of their beliefs. You must ascribe to all of their tenets. So. Let me pass it to you, Noor. Where do we stand? Are these people winning? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Jack, for having me on again. It's a real pleasure. I really enjoy our exchanges. And what a great intro ahead of our conversation and everything we're going to cover. It was a perfect summary. Where do we stand? So we are at the very last stages of their agenda of the implementation of their agenda of the new world order, which was then changed to the Great Reset because that first term was too tainted. But in essence, what we're talking about here is a world government. And to the point you were making in your introduction, uh, the theme of this year was, in fact, cooperation in a fragmented uh, world, as we had mentioned last time I was on. And you're absolutely right. It's about this entire infrastructure that was set up throughout the 20th century formed of all these entities and vehicles that are these international organizations that are the central banks, that are the captured governments, that are the different corporations uh, that have become ubiquitous, that have become uh, to a large extent, a large extent, excuse me, um, oligopolies or monopolies, and they all work hand in hand with the help of a total control of our media and information networks 
all to push towards this implementation of a one world government. And so what happened or what transpired this whole week uh, in Davos, um, and as I had you know, referred to it, this giant press conference, essentially because it is the controlled revealed of these plans, we are seeing the, the last push towards the, towards the realization of this goal. And so they laid out the plans very clearly for us. And if you look back just at the past three years, you can feel you can feel the urgency of and the acceleration of the implementation again of of uh, these measures, these policies, these um, these new treaties, and all the rules and regulations that are meant to supersede national laws. Because this is the key thing: they want to implement international an international based rule order. You know, they have all these terms to describe it that would essentially render the nation state obsolete and with it, its sovereignty and our sovereignty as individuals. This has always been their goal. And that's why uh, I always remember when when President Trump attended the World Economic Forum in 18 and 20, Mm -hmm. he specifically stated and he said this again at the United Nations that we must maintain the power of sovereign nation states. This should be the underpinning for safety and security, and that our lens for national security, for economic security, for uh, national growth, for culture should always be through the nation state. However, you see these organizations pushing for things like the genderless society, for the borderless society, the cashless society. Everything is digital. Everything is fluid. And yet at the same time, you notice that if you step out of line, if you disagree with the um, with the world state and their priorities on any issue, for example, in my hometown of Philadelphia recently, we had a a, a, a hockey player who would did not want to take partake in a pride night. And pride mm-hmm. night is where you, um, they, they would post pride flags everywhere in the hockey arena. And they would wear pride jerseys, this new hockey jersey that had been implemented in Philadelphia. Well, this Philadelphia flyer said, I I do not want to. I'm a Christian that goes against my beliefs. And there has been a response to this of abject horror, vilification, uh, journalists on, on air screaming at him. And so my question isn't even necessarily so much about uh, whether he wanted to wear a jersey or not, it's what we should be very concerned with, though, is the reaction to any individual who wishes to stand up and take agency for themselves to think for themselves, possibly because of religious beliefs, belief in in Jesus Christ, in this case, uh, that goes against the edicts and the wants of the world state that you will be demonized, you will be attacked, you will be vilified, you will be destroyed. It's happened to you. It's happened to me. But uh, this is just another example in the fact that, it, you know, it happened in my hometown. This was the the hockey team that I grew up watching and going to with my father. Um, we used to have the, the Broad Street Brawlers and then some other famous, you know, uh, you know, we used to go for the fights, you know, not so much for the for the pride jerseys. But yeah. but why is it? Why is it that the reaction is so swift and so severe to anyone who goes against this agenda? Because all of these entities that I mentioned that form part of the globalist infrastructure architecture um, are all geared towards 
um, crushing any form of dissent or anyone who dares um, um, veer off the script, basically, and show any form of individuality, but much more than that, show any form of um, rebellion and of will to maintain tradition, traditional life, traditional values, uh, which is exactly what they're trying to crush and have been for years. This is such a mass scale uh, social engineering project whereby we have reached such a level of degeneracy. And again, this went through the capture of so many of our institutions, education, media, entertainment, um, sports, which you know is linked to entertainment. But yes. all of these different vectors of society have been poisoned uh, with this uh, propaganda. And so I think one of the most historic um, historic times that we got to live through, you know, was President Trump, well, then candidate Trump announcing that he was running for president in 2015. And you just saw the, the um, power of that machine uh, at play. And, uh, and that was so telling in terms of the point that we had reached in the uh, in the capture of of our society, in essence. Well, I think that's exactly right, and so I do think that, uh, and certainly you can put that in the context along with Nigel Farage and Brexit. You can mm-hmm. put it in the context of a variety of sort of these uh, pro nationalist, pro populist tendencies that have been building up around the world, and it's sort of a mm-hmm. it's it's interesting because you know, of course, the, these are this is happening in. Uh, multiple countries. So it's sort of an alliance, an international alliance of nationalists. Mm-hmm. So international nationalists, mm-hmm. sort of a uh, yeah. almost a contradiction in terms. But but the thing is, what I, I've been to Mexico and I've, I've given speeches on this. I've been to Hungary. I've been to Poland. Uh, I've been all around the world. And that's, I always give the exact same speech. I always say the exact same thing, because in every single one of these places, they're all facing the same threats. They're all facing the same global tendencies. And whether it be Brussels or whether it be Davos or whether it be Geneva uh, or the United Nations headquarters in New York, these are all different nodes. Uh, The World Health Organization and Tedros, these are all Mm -hmm. different nodes of the same thing. And they deliberately keep it nebulous. They deliberately keep it uh, sort of hard to pin down. And, yeah. and I know there's been some people who have said, well, oh, no, Klaus Schwab is, you know, he's just some James Bond villain. He's not the one calling the shots. He's not the one who's making these decisions. He's the one on TV selling it to you. He's the, uh, he's the promoter. He's, but he's not the one who's making, uh, all of these, all of these plans and setting this agenda. And so we're, we're just about out of time for this segment. We've got about one minute left, but you said that we're in the last stages. If we're in the last stages, do we still have the ability to turn things around? I absolutely do think so. I have complete faith in, in first of all, in God, but I have faith in humanity. And they are, they are, they are so desperate. You see, they are so sloppy. They are, they are, they were so taken aback by the response to President Trump. And as you just mentioned, all these uprisings and all these movements, nationalist movements uh, taking place in all these different countries. And at the end of the day, they can try with all their different operations, whether they're psycholo- psychological, economical or 
educational, just all the different weapons that they have turned against us and the might of the state, uh, not to mention, they cannot quell the human spirit and what it make what makes us human. And I think, you know, we're going to get into transhumanism and this topic after the break um, from what we were discussing um, before the show, but it very much ties into that because at the end of the day, their one. plan is one of depopulation and, uh, and it's a eugenicist plan. On that note, let's take that break and we'll be right back. More with Norbin Lund. And we're back here with Norbin Laden. We're discussing the World Economic Forum, what they've laid out, their agenda, but also really this longstanding agenda uh, pushing for a one world government. I call it the world state, like you see uh, Aldous Huxley laid out. And actually, we were just talking about some of the uprisings to uh, in, in, in dissent of this, whether it be a, a hockey player who refuses to wear a jersey because he's Christian or we're also seeing in on a governmental scale in the country of New Zealand, uh, one of the top World Economic Forum acolytes, Jacinda Ardern, shockingly has stepped down, announced her immediate departure. This was one of the most authoritarian leaders in the entire world, possibly even more authoritarian than Justin Trudeau himself in Canada in terms of her enforcement of the forced vaccinations, the lockdowns that we saw going on across the country. And really, when, when we're looking into this, and we don't know yet whether there's any personal scandals that are coming out, but we do see that from a polling perspective, uh, New Zealand is going for national elections later this year, and her left-wing bloc has collapsed in terms of support in New Zealand. The National Party, is, which is the center-right party in New Zealand, um, is leading for the first time in over a decade, I believe, against left-wing politics and the left-wing uh, bloc in New Zealand. So you've got another example there of these pro-freedom, pro-nationalist, pro-human agency uh, tickets that has really captured the zeitgeist and a complete rejection of the things that the World Economic Forum and their acolytes like Jacinda Ardern are pushing. Absolutely. And this is the thing, their agenda is so anti-human and people don't want to live in a pod and uh, eat bugs. I personally don't want that. Meanwhile, these people are flying around in private jets, eating meat, even at COP27 uh, in Egypt, they were having their Wagyu beef. And, uh, and this is not at all the future they have prepared for us. And this is exactly what we were discussing uh, when I was on with you earlier this week. They want us hooked up to a grid. They want to control us. They want to put us in digital jails. And at the end of the day, we are very close to that goal, even though I believe they will fail. The next couple of years, we will see the acceleration of the implementation of such a system because we have never been so close in terms of the technological advances. advances. And you have metrology specifically, the measurement of everything, everywhere, all the time, thanks to the Internet of Things, 5G, and uh, the impending implementation of CBDCs, digital currencies, will allow for these digital jails uh, to be set up. And, you know, that involves carbon ratios and uh, social credit score systems uh, here in uh in the West, as we discussed on the show uh, before, uh, Jack. I, but I keep saying that that for folks to understand that you live in a digital jail, 
uh, and that they're trying to erect digital. I love this this formulation that you've you've given it um, around around you, around your life, around your children. That the best example I can give, and I would say this to the folks who say that oh, you shouldn't pay attention to the World Economic Forum. They're not all that important. They're not influential. Uh, when you go to stop your car at a red light and your engine shuts off, if you're in a newer car, why does it do that? That's because of the World Economic Forum and their agenda. That's because of Clash Robinson's agenda, because it's a subtle reminder that you are not really in control. And that's the perfect example, Jack, because they are using the, ju the justification they are using is, you know, climate change and they're pushing for decarbonization and net zero emissions and all of these terms, you know, um, talking about the impending doom around uh, climate change. Uh, is what uh, they're they're using to justify this digitization of our societies, as we've talked about. But not only that, uh, of course, looking at the past three years, again, we have the so-called pandemic that they, you know, launched. Let's put it that way. And they're still talking about this. So, talking, looking at the agenda throughout the week, the pandemic was very much uh, a, a key a topic here because they are planning more. Uh, they're under the guise of preparation, of course, as always, they're preparing more um, rollouts in terms of so-called pandemics. They, they had one panel entitled 100 Days to Outtrace the Next Pandemic. And the topic was creating safe and effective vaccines in 100 days to help economies and societies contain the next outbreak before it spreads. So this is very much uh, still... Um, uh, a justification for the implementation of digital IDs and uh, other means of tracing the population. Everything is about tracking us and uh, and restricting our movements well, in their, every way their possible. Belief, their belief system is is flawed because they limit themselves to only the quantifiable. They limit themselves to what can I input into an Excel spreadsheet? What can I view through my microscope? What can I uh, project onto, onto a computer screen? They worship data. They worship science rather than conducting science. They worship these things with almost a, a godlike reverence. And this is in, in the same sense, why they also, you know, things like beauty, things like culture, things like art are anathema to them, because, of course, art, none of that is quantifiable. Uh, love is not quantifiable. I love my wife. I love my children. I love my friends. Well, not all of them, but sometimes. And uh, none of that is quantifiable, of course, yet it's, it, it is intrinsically human and it is intrinsically part of the human experience, love, feeling, emotions. And uh, my, my anecdote of this that uh, as they in their push for transhumanism, which, of course, will be the fully full on not only digitization and digital jail of our physical lives, but also our psychological lives uh, through the implementation of and even, you know, uh, Elon Musk with with um, his, his once the open AI and the chip in your brain that. When when Tanya Tay, my wife visited the World Economic Forum last year and went to the Metaverse uh, house, the Metaverse exhibit. They said to her, well, if you if you give this headset to your child, then they don't need to go to the zoo. They don't need to go out. They can just 
experience nature and experience animals right here in the screen in the comfort of their own home. And I remember Tanya as a mother looking at them saying, you want my children to spend more time in front of a screen and not only in front of it, but having it attached to their faces while they sit inside rather than actually go out and enjoy nature and enjoy actual uh, human and physical true experiences. And it, it, it was a complete guttural rejection of everything they believe in because for her as a mom, for her as someone and, and, and for myself, you know, we're raising our children. Uh, of course, we want our kids to have real experiences. We don't want them locked into digital jails for their entire lives. No, and you know, in the meantime, they will be flying to South Africa, organizing safari trips for their children, while our children are stuck with these screens in front of our in front of their eyes. And it's exactly the same the same uh, principle that all these tech. Um, these tech CEOs and high-ranking uh, corporate people—they—they they don't have—they—they they put their kids in in tech-free schools, so they know the harms of uh, technology and of those screens and the effects on on uh, on our children. But for them, it's a different system than for us. And the thing you were saying is so true, Jack. You know, there's so much to dissect when it comes to globalism, when it comes to the different uh, operations that we've had, that we've been sub subjected to throughout the 20th century. But if we had to boil it down to one thing is that they've done everything in their power to poison us, mind, body, and soul. I couldn't agree more. When, when you look at this, this idea of everything must be quantified and measured, and and then also these sort of these pleasure palaces, but physical, you know, and mental pleasure, but not not actual real experiences that it, it really goes back to when I remember this Aldous Huxley book, where because in that the elites of the world state take their vacations in the savage lands and they act, they don't participate in the savage lands, but they observe them. And so these are these are villages where poor backward citizens still live in the rustic ways of growing their own food and raising their own livestock and living in houses without the advent of, of such technology. And then, of course, the plot of the novel as it goes on is that one of the savages, uh, they, they then meet one of the one of the elites. And it turns out that he can quote Shakespeare verbatim and is actually highly mm -hmm. intelligent and was everything that they had been told that that these these plebs, these uh, these savages, mm -hmm. as they're called in the book, were were not. And this was written 100 years ago. You can watch the movie Gattaca and find out as well about yeah. the eugenicist agenda, which I'd, I'd love to talk about in the next segment. Um, but there is an idea. There is always an idea of these elites, that they can establish utopia here on earth, that they can become gods and that they, they will have servants and we will exist to serve them and they will have attained their apotheosis through the understanding of data, through the understanding of science, through the quantifying of, of all human beings as merely cogs in their machine exactly. that are meant to be molded and shaped along with their own interests. And yeah, I prefer not to do that. I prefer to be a, a living, breathing American human being with my children that are going to be raised to be strong and believers and and not believe in any of that stuff. No, you know, and it's very interesting that you mentioned Huxley because 
um, I think it's quite well known, but you know, his brother Julian, Julian. was um, a total eugenicist and one of the most um, prominent voices for eugenicism and for, uh, yeah, the eugenist movement and for this new world order. And uh, so a lot of people say that uh, Aldous Huxley had great foresight, but I think he was privy to many of the conversations and many of the plans uh, that were being talked about behind the scenes back in the back in the first half of the 20th century. So is it right immediately after World War One, really post post World War One, it was that League of Nations era. There's there's actually an interesting yeah. discussion. We'll have to have it some other time. But was was Hux, was was Aldous Huxley writing the book to support his brother's ideas or was he yeah. writing them to critique his brother's ideas? And I'm not sure. I'm actually not sure which way where which way I look at it. I, I asked myself the very same question, but no, you're absolutely right. I, I find the first half of the 20th century, particularly the first quarter, fascinating because that's when a lot of these um, of these plans were really solidified, uh, especially in the U.S. You know, thankfully, and we had discussed this when you were in Geneva last year, but uh, the U.S. had stood strong and uh, rejected the first attempt to a world government with the League of Nations. But uh, the creation of the Fed in 1913 uh, definitely was a turning point. And uh, from then on, the United States, unfortunately, has um, has uh, been infiltrated to the point where we where we see the country, the state in which it is. And there's actually a really interesting anecdote. But uh, James Warburg, the son of Paul Wahlberg, I believe, who was one of the key architects of uh, the Federal Reserve, his son, I have it somewhere here for the exact quote. I had saved it for you. But his son, um, who was a financial advisor to Roosevelt and also a CFR member, he had said in 1950, so after the creation of the United Nations, about five years exactly after, yeah, five years after the creation of the United Nations, at a U.S. Senate subcommittee on the revision of that U.N. charter, he said, Mm -hmm. We shall have world government, whether or not we like it. The question is only whether world government will be achieved by con- consent or by conquest. And he further stated, Mr. Chairman, I am here to testify in favor of Senate Resolution 56, which, if concurrently enacted with the House, would make the peaceful transformation of the United Nations into a world federation, the avowed aim of United States policy. So, yeah, you've had throughout the 20th century and even before, I would argue, from the moment of the United States um, revolution and creation of the country ever since. I mean, also the 1800s is fascinating when you look at the history of the U.S. um, and the infiltration and the genesis of uh, globalism. Actually, um, you can trace it back to the early 1800s even but this this infiltration and um, the hijacking of the country basically is something that has been going on for a long time. And it's a testament to the solidity of the system that the founding fathers set up because it would have taken so much effort for the globalists to take the United States from its inception and from the understanding that the population had of what it means to be a free uh, individual, a free agent, to the point 
of today where people are completely willing to sign up to the slaughterhouse and um, don't really know what the country stands for, which is something that really pains me as someone who really loves America uh, for many personal reasons, having a, a very close relationship, but also because I very much understand that the United States is what stands in the way your constitution and your bill of rights are what stand of the way of the globalist program. And this, this is, and, and, and I'm, you know, have to give credit where it's due. This was Steve Bannon's formulation that to understand that it was the founding fathers rejecting the globalism of the time in even the 18th century before the 1800s, um, the globalism of the time was the British Empire. So this already was a, a global system controlled by a singular monarch in London that the United States and the founding fathers completely rejected and decided to uh, cut themselves off of and create a self-sustaining nation state that was separate from the global empire that was the British Empire. Uh, this was the initial reason for the founding of the United States that we always think of it when we teach it in the United States, we, we think, oh, we broke away from England, but it wasn't just breaking away from England. It was breaking free of the empire. It was breaking free of the global system at the time. And if you can go read, as I have Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, he explains that it worked as an imperial system around the entire globe. That's what we need to focus on. And so what they're trying to do now is create, and they've been trying to do this ever since uh, the fall of the empire, really at the end of uh, World War II, to recreate a form of a British empire that is done to, you know, to that quote you just read, the incredible quote, through consent, not necessarily through conquest. But as we've seen time and time again, uh, if your country has a name like Iraq, if your country has a name like uh, Syria, if your country has a name like Libya, uh, if your country currently has a name like Ukraine, well, then it won't necessarily be through consent. It may be through the threat and use of military force. Norbin Laden, stay there. To, uh, stay tuned for one more second because we're going to be right back. And we're back, Norbin Laden. So where we just left, and I got to give you a chance to respond to this, the theory that are all of these systems trying to recreate a sort of reanimated zombie model of the British empire that the United States had originally been founded as a as a breakaway from to get out of that global imperial system. Yes, I would argue that times haven't really changed in that regard and that very the nervous center, the nerve uh, center actually of the system very much sits in the city of London. And um, if you look at history and we had discussed this Jack, again, when you were here in Geneva, but the League of Nations wasn't a Woodrow Wilson project. It was a British project. And in fact, the administration of Woodrow Wilson was filled with people who were uh, in reality working for the British Empire. And so Woodrow Wilson was chosen as the figurehead, as the champion. And as we had remarked when we were walking in the streets of Geneva, you have Palais Wilson, all these Ke Wilson, all these, um, all these the landmarks, harbor. and yeah, yeah, all these landmarks uh, dedicated to him because obviously Geneva, where I am right now in Switzerland, uh, was chosen as the base for the globalists to do all their dirty works, kind of like the back office 
And uh, that has been decided long ago, even before the League of Nations. But maybe that's a conversation for another time. But to come back to the point is that well, the and, United States... For yeah. the for the folks who didn't didn't watch, this is all covered in our Great Reset documentary. That's what what Nor's referring to, is just to to provide the context. If you haven't seen it, but go to tpusa.com/slash/greatreset. You can watch it. That uh, the original headquarters of the League of Nations was called the Wilson Palace, which is of course on Wilson Street next to Wilson Harbor, and the original actual uh, building for the. Uh, after they built a um, a meeting hall for the Great League of Nations, is now where <laughs> the World Health Organization holds their annual summits. Yeah, I think it's the uh, human rights uh, arm of the UN that is in the Palais Wilson, but they're all in the same vicinity. And uh, yeah, absolutely, you 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 said it correctly. The League of it's Nations right were first. Yeah, it was. They were first headquartered in Geneva. And the UN headquarters, you know, there it's a dual thing with New York, but also with Geneva. The WEF, uh, the World Economic Headquarters, are also in Geneva. Um, you have also, in terms of banking and the Bank for International, um, the Bank for Settlements um, is located in Basel. Excuse me, I was trying to remember. So Switzerland very much is one of the globalist uh, bases for for all the implementation in terms of the infrastructure as we were talking about earlier. But coming back to the hijacking and the infiltration of the United States is just such a fascinating topic to study because you then get to understand much more about uh, geopolitics. And as I had tweeted a while back, and I think it's very important to ask yourself that question, how did we go from Pax Britannica to Pax Americana right after World War II? How did the U.S. become the policeman of the world? And this is something that President Trump remarked uh, often, which I think is a very important question when you look at the dynamics between um, Britain and the United States. And at the end of the day, you know, two world wars had to be launched um, in order to to put forward all the globalist agenda, and that could not happen without the capturing of the United States of America. We also um, covered in a, in a recent episode, um, my view, something that I've been saying for 15 years now, of the end of World War II with the establishment of the United Nations. Um, we, I was covering the rise of the CCP, the takeover of Chairman Mao in 1949, and this question of, of sort of, you know, why was it that the U.S. went from supporting the nationalists, supporting Chiang Kai-shek, and then seemed to kind of sell them out, not really give them the support they needed, um, sort of just allowed, and George Marshall was part of this, the same from the Marshall Plan uh, of, of post-war Europe, to allow Chairman Mao to win, uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the Republic of China, of course, flee to Taiwan. This is where we get the Taiwan uh, conflict, the Taiwan situation that we have now. But my thesis based on declassified documents from diplomats of the 1940s and the 1950s was that there was a deal that was struck probably during FDR and then continued on through Truman, predominantly through the elements of the State Department. And this is something that, of course, uh, Senator McCarthy was, was very uh, direct about during his tenure, that 
there were communists in the United States State Department that decided that the deal was struck for the Soviet Union to enter into the uh, United Nations because they realized the League of Nations failed because they were not able to get the United Nations in or the United States in. So they wanted, they needed all the buy-ins of the superpowers of the time. So all the victors of World War II. So in order for the Soviet Union to acquiesce to uh, FDR's plan of United Nations, but going back, it's really just sort of this global plan, was, was that the payment that was requested of them, the dowry, if you will, toward the globalists, was the Chinese Communist Party would take over China. And as we see, that's exactly what happened. You have all these backdoor deals. It's like uh, China entering the WTO in the, at the end of the 90s. But the history Only of global... a few global years is, after Tiananmen Square, by the way. Yeah. But listen, the whole history of, uh, of globalism is fascinating. And I would really encourage listeners to go look at my dear friend Richard Poe's work. He writes at Substack, Richard Poe. .substack.com, and he also uh, has many of his articles published on Lou Rockwell's website. But he wrote uh, different articles. One in particular comes to mind, which is how the British invented globalism. And so you can go back to uh, the roots of the system that we see unfolding before our eyes today. And the second article, now that I'm thinking about it, that is just absolutely brilliant, is um, I think I'm going to mess up the title, but it's. Uh, how the um, how the British caused the U.S. Civil War, and that is also mm. very fascinating because it ties in with globalism and uh, and how they tried already to break up the United States back then, uh, purely for um, uh, economic purposes, and uh, they didn't they just didn't want the U.S. to be a strong independent nation. Well, there's, there's an interesting so, uh, angle to that, that, of, of course, people, what you're referring to is the, the potentiality of, of the British coming in in support of the Confederacy in the South, uh, the, the cotton sales that were going to to throughout the empire. But there was a potential uh, warning that the British would get involved to open up those southern ports so that the, uh, the United States, the Union Army, the Union Navy this is, of course, where we get, you know, Dan, the port torpedoes full speed ahead. Um, the great quote from the U.S. Navy that if the British got involved, the Tsar, the emperor of Russia at the time, came in and said, if the British get involved, then the Imperial Russian Navy will come in on behalf of the North and on behalf of the Union. And so you have this same imperial great power struggle that was going on even throughout the 1800s, to your point again, about what was sort of really going on in the geopolitical space, as well as, you know, we, we look at it as, you know, the question of slavery and, and states' rights and, you know, sort of these other conflicts. But there is a broader context that gets very much lost when you only look at it through a narrow lens. Um, we're going to come back. I think we have one more segment left with Norbin Laden. This has been one of the most fan fascinating conversations that we have. I don't think we've stuck to our initial plan whatsoever, <laughs> but I think we've we've built upon it and improved. And, and so hopefully in the last segment, we can build back better. We'll be right back. So, Nor, this is our last segment, and we've talked about how we believe in, in the power of human agency, the human spirit. We believe in God. And we've talked about the history of globalism and how we brought ourselves to this point. But the next stage that I really see them focusing on is 
this question of transhumanism. Why are they so focused on transhumanism? Why does Elon Musk push Neuralink and these new platforms for us? Uh, why is this the next step in the plan? That's such a great question. And um, as you mentioned, you know, they really want to quell that spirit. They're so anti-human and this is why they're so anti-American, because this is precisely what the founding fathers had understood and what they managed to enshrine in uh, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, this, this um, protection of our rights that are God-given and not given by any type of government. And these people want to be the masters. Even Klaus Minion Schwab said it the other day, to master the world. This is how they view themselves. Master and so it goes hand in yeah, a master of the future. And uh, that's exactly how these people view themselves. We, we closed um, the last show with that, is that they believe that they are God and that they have power over us and that they know how we should um, lead our lives and that they have the legitimacy to tell us how to lead our lives. And um, this goes hand in hand with everything that we were talking about with the eugenicists program. Uh, that they've rolled out throughout the 20th century in so many various ways, including coming back to poisoning us, mind, body, and soul, uh, in order to limit our, quote, proliferation, to use one of their terms, because uh, they view us as a, as a cancer and as an impediment to their precious resources uh, that they want to control and that they want to manage as they see fit. And so we are basically merely cattle in the system that have to be used as exactly as you said at some point in the conversation cogs in the machine and we have to serve we have to serve what it is they need in their lives and so in order to keep us subservient um they want us to live in the metaverse to live in the pod and to eat in the bugs and in the same vein that they believe that they are gods they want to transcend mortality and that's where the transhumanism uh, comes in. But I believe in God. I believe that uh, when the time comes, um, you know, I will leave this, uh, this earth and uh, I'm not trying to, to fight that, but they absolutely are. Uh, they want to stay in the matrix like Cypher. They want to eat their steak. And, um, and uh, that's not a world that I'm, I'm interested in seeing in my lifetime. And, Thankfully, I do have faith that we will thwart their plans. The the film that I, I've always said that people need to watch, in, in addition to The Matrix and, and really Dark City, which I think actually does a better vision of, version of The Matrix, is, uh, is Gattaca. And I once said that uh, I would never would never marry someone if they didn't understand the importance of the film Gattaca, where it is a, a dystopian vision of the future in which uh, genetically engineered humans rule the world and yet there are still what they call faith birth humans and the faith birth humans yeah. um are sort of this underclass a servant class a uh, they do menial labor gore vidal's in it gore vidal does a fantastic job in the film as well as uh, ethan hawk and jude law and uh the the genetically engineered people are referred to as valids and the the faith birth or natural birth people are referred to as invalid. So you you are invalid yeah. if you have not gone through the system. And uh, this is of course the the film where um, Uma Thurman and and uh, Ethan Hawke met, and they later became married. I think their daughter is like an actress now. And uh, in the film, though, Ethan Hawke's character plays someone 
who was an invalid that shows the power of the human spirit and shows that uh, his yearning and it's 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 shown through the motif of his character wanting to become an astronaut in the film that you know that in the system that's been set up there's no way that a non-genetically engineered person could ever make it through the rigorous training of an astronaut program and he proves them all wrong because of his belief in the transcendent his belief in the human soul and is able to actually make it into space because of his belief in, in breaking down every single one of these quantifiable rules that anyone could even understand. And so that film came out in 1997. And uh, I remember just sort of, you know, saying uh, uh, glibly afterwards, I said, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to marry anyone who doesn't, uh, who doesn't get this movie because I don't want to ever have kids with someone who doesn't understand all this. And on, I, I'm not to, you know, make it too personal, but on one of the very first dates that I ever had with my, my wife, Tanya Tay, we actually got to meet Ethan Hawke and the director of Gattaca at a private, uh, at a private film screening um, that I had, I was, you know, when I was in the military, I would, I was able to receive tickets for it. And uh, it always kind of popped back in my head to say, you know, I remember saying that. And, and this seems like something is working out, uh, in an interesting way. And, and of course, yes, we, we do believe that as well. <laughs> so Tanya was based from the start. <laughs> Look, Tanya's from Eastern Europe. They're all based over there. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they don't, you know, they, they don't go in for any stuff. I mean, and she said, uh, I, I remember as well with the vaccine rollout when, um, yeah. when they came in and, um, you know, with this, with the, the COVID vaccine, if, if anyone tries to bring that slime around my babies, yeah. they're going to have to get through me first. Oh, for sure. And uh, not to get too personal either, but for example, I wouldn't have children with someone who is uh, who is jabbed because you just don't know uh, what the consequences wow. on the long term um, can be. But no, that movie was absolutely incredible. I don't remember the guy's name. We tweeted about it, but the director who has such a great uh, filmography. How do you pronounce that word? Filmography. Demography, yeah. yeah. Um, it's as Andrew well, Nichol, you know. Yeah, Andrew Nichol, yeah. Uh, the Truman Show, Anon. Um, there were, yeah, at least two, he three others that were absolutely Lord, great. Lord he also did Lord of War. Yeah, Lord he, of War, yeah. Uh, yeah. The Nicolas Cage, which of course, you know, just goes through the, you know, how our wars are actually, and a fantastic filmmaker, couldn't recommend more to everybody. But on, on this last note, we've got a few minutes left, nor can we win? Can human agency and the human spirit win against this 100-year, 200-year cabal that is pushing globalism upon us, that has been working out the deals behind the scenes? Is it enough? Listen, we have to brace for very difficult years ahead. Uh, I, I'm not one to you know, sugarcoat things, and we will be going through great trials. Um, even worse than I think what we saw the last three years and we saw the damage and the destruction that that caused. Um, but that being said, I have no doubt that God and light wins. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely couldn't agree more. By the way, uh, Andrew Nichol, I was just looking at the thing during the break there, also did Truman Show. Yeah, Truman of course. Show, yeah. The, the, yeah. the idea that we're all... Uh, being controlled by people behind the scenes and that our own lives are not actually our own decisions and that there's some nebulous uh, force that's watching all of us controlling everything behind the scenes. I mean, some of the most 
uh, transformative films of the last two decades really have been from he also does an entire film about the uh the united states drone program in the middle east and um the all of the controversies that go along with that which we're now seeing on the battlefield play out in in ukraine I'm not sure if it's prescience or if it's predictive programming, you know, with Hollywood, usually it's the latter, but in any case, it was, um, it was completely spot on when it comes to observations about our society and where we're headed. Couldn't agree more, but, but Norbin Laden, thank you so much for your time, your energy, your faith, and your endurance in this fight, because we do have to grin and bear it. We do have to embrace the suck. But at the same time, we have to understand that they will never defeat the human spirit. Go follow Norbin Laden, Twitter, Getter, all of her writings, all of her work. And ladies and gentlemen, once again, you have my permission to lay ashore. 